Good morning. Man, it is great to be with all of you. In case I've not had the chance to meet you, my name is Mark Geisbauer, and I get to serve here as the executive pastor. And I can't wait to share the message that I think God wants to share with all of us today as we're all getting ready for Christmas, right? Undoubtedly, over these last few weeks, we spent tireless hours over hours trying to get the tree ready and up or decorate your houses and trying to get not just our hearts ready for Christmas, but our, but our environments as well. And so I thought as we're launching into this brand new message series, it'd be fun to kind of do a little litmus test of where you are as you're getting ready for Christmas and what are your preferences. So I want to play a little game with all of us uh, right here in Illyria, but also if you're watching online at the other campuses, please feel free to participate. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you always five options, no right or wrong answers, just your personal preferences as we're getting ready for Christmas. So let me explain to you how we're going to do this. I'm going to show you the first question. Really easy. One of my favorites, gathering my girls around um, watching a movie, right? And so what I want you to do is to raise up your hand and just by signaling with your hand, what is your personal preference? So as you're gathering around, what would be your movie preference? Is it one elf? So then just raise one hand, uh, two fingers, um, Home Alone 2. If you think Charlie Brown Christmas is your favorite, three the Grinch 4, or pretty much anything from Hallmark. Have you noticed that it's pretty much all the same movie? So we're just going to lump all of those together. I do see some fives in there. I see some twos right there, some fours. Yep, good. All right, good. Well, you can put your hands back down, but I've got another one for you. Maybe movies is not your thing, but you really like food and drinks. I want to know, what is your favorite Christmas treat? Is it gingerbread? Is it peppermint hot chocolate? Raise up two fingers. If it's candy canes, three. If it's sugar cookies, four. And if it's fig pudding, five. And if you know what fig pudding is, you get an extra point. How about that? All right, I see a one right there. Two campuses, I see you as well. Oh, up there. Yep, good. Four. There's a two. Okay. All right, now I know what I have to get you for Christmas. But maybe you like music, right? Christmas is all about music. In fact, we have a staff member here that pretty much January 1st hits around. He starts playing Christmas music getting ready for the next year. So the question is, what song would you play? Would you play Santa Claus is Coming to Town, one? Would you play Feliz Navidad, number two? The Chipmunk Christmas song, number three? Heart the Herald Angels Sing, number four? Or Raise Up Five Fingers, if it's all I want for Christmas is you. Which also reminds me, one of my best friends, the other day, he said he got in his truck, and he would start driving, and it's like his car is making all sorts of weird noises until he realized it was Mariah Carey. So, but... Let me see your hands. Let me see your hands. I see some twos, threes, twos, four, one. All right, four, good. All right, and then I have one final one as we're getting our hearts ready for Christmas. And that is really what is your favorite pre-Christmas tradition? You love to decorate the tree. You like to build snowmen. Christmas caroling for three. If you love driving around to see the lights, raise up four hands and... And I got to make this is a shameless plug for our Christmas Eve services, number five. So I got to go with five, but what else? Nice. I see some really great hands, four, fives, one. All right, good. Well, if you do want to invite somebody for Christmas Eve services um, here in Elira, Amanda already mentioned it, but um, on the way out, there are some tables there. Grab an invite card. Make sure you give it to somebody else inviting them for Christmas. But we're not the only ones getting ready for Christmas, Right. I mean, this is a celebration all around the world. And I love that our uh, mission council has reached out to all of our missionaries, especially the ones abroad, and said, hey, 
what's something that you do to get your hearts ready for Christmas? Or how do you celebrate Christmas? And I'm excited to share this video with you. So why don't you turn your attention to the screens? One of the Christmas traditions that we have here in El Salvador is that uh, families just come together to enjoy a delicious dinner. So we have tamales, stuffed chicken, or turkey. When it's midnight, uh, we hug each other and we light some fireworks to celebrate that the Christmas has come. On Christmas Eve, we celebrate with the tradition of eating paneton, a sweet fruit bread, and drinking hot chocolate. Traditionally, on Christmas Eve, we go Christmas caroling around the town and sing and give testimony to Christ's birth. A Christmas tradition that our family has done over the past couple of years is we will invite refugees into our home and we gather around our Christmas tree and we share with them a few gifts and then share the story of Christ and how he is the ultimate gift. Nos gusta pintar la casa y tener eh, quizás puerco o cerdo, pollo o pavo el día 24. Es un gran día para nosotros. Probably the biggest one is they love to go on a big hunt, come back with a bunch of wild pigs, birds, tree kangaroos, all kinds of stuff, and we have a big feast. So that's become tradition in Moy. Merry Christmas. Christmas Eve in the Philippines is Noche Buena, a special time where families prepare foods, holiday foods, of pancit, barbecue, lichon, sweet macaroni salad, and then the families and friends visit one another and they enjoy one another, they eat together and have a good time. The main thing that the, we do here around Christmas time is we spend time together as families. We just visit a lot, go fishing and uh, have meals together and a lot of reminiscing about what happened in the last year and maybe looking ahead to what can happen for the new year of 2023. When Christmas comes, they come to our house and visit us because they know it's our holiday. And so our prayer is one day that they would be able to celebrate Christ's birth with us and then it could also be their holiday. Isn't it absolutely amazing how Christmas looks different in different places all around the world? And I got to be honest, I'm a little jealous. I mean, I would love to go like big pig hunting and then eating it afterwards. I mean, what a fun thing to do. But what you may know about me is that I'm from Germany. And in Germany, we had our own little Christmas traditions as we were getting ready for Christmas. And actually on Christmas Day, it has everything to do for me with this actual bell. This is a picture that I had my parents take from Germany because they, don't, they still own it there. And what you need to know in Germany, if you celebrate Christmas, we do it a day early. So we actually celebrate and um, receive gifts on the December 24th. So kids, if you're in the room, if you want to get your gifts early, just ask for a German Christmas. And parents, I'm sorry, I know I just got you in trouble. But we celebrate a night early. And so what happens is usually... We would get ready um, the day of, and then we would go to church and have a wonderful Christmas Eve service, and we would then go home and uh, would have a wonderful Christmas feast together as a family sitting around enjoying some good food and fellowship. And then my sister and I would be sent to our rooms, and we had to keep the doors closed. And I remember at like the age of seven or eight, I mean, like, I probably were only just a few minutes, but it seemed like eternity. It seemed like I couldn't wait for Christmas to really continue and to start and to be together as a family again. And that's where this bell comes in. Because the bell was the symbol for my sister and I 
to swing open our doors and make a sprint to our family room where we would be welcomed with a beautiful Christmas tree, some music playing in the backgrounds. My father would then read us the Christmas story. We would sing some songs together. And then, yes, we got to open our gifts the night before. But I don't know about you. What are some Christmas stories that you have, some memories that you have when you were a child about how you got ready for Christmas and preparing for this amazing gift that Jesus gave us? That's what we're going to talk about in this message series. We're going to look at the Bible and we're going to continue in the Gospel of Luke about God preparing the earth for Jesus' arrival. So we moved on from the promises and today we're going to see some of those promises being fulfilled. And today specifically, we're going to look at the birth of John the Baptist. But the story we're going to read today actually started three weeks ago. Well, it started many years before, but we learned about it three weeks ago. And Pastor Jim led us through the passage about introducing us to this couple of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And it came to a time where God appeared to be silent for 400 years. No prophets were in the land between the Old Testament and then the beginning of the New. And people were wondering what this was all about and when the promise of the Messiah would finally be fulfilled. And in that situation, we get introduced to Zechariah and Elizabeth. And they're described as an amazing couple. They both come from a priestly background. In fact, that was Zechariah's job. He was a priest. And they were called righteous and blameless. What a great description of us if we ever get there to be called in the Bible blameless and righteous. So they were a great couple serving God faithfully. But they also had a problem. They desperately wanted to have a child. But they were facing two major obstacles. The first one was that Elizabeth was barren. She could not have kids herself. And the second one is that they were both old. In fact, I love how Zechariah um, phrases it. He calls himself old, and then he calls his wife well-advanced in years. I mean, guys, if you're in here, like, take note of that. I mean, you're bragging about your wife's age in the Bible, like, and get it recorded. Well done, Zechariah. But we can see that they were barren and old in years, so they had given up all hope at that point in time. And then we read on and get introduced into the most important day of Zechariah's career. Because out of all the priests in that land, he was selected to be the one to one time in a year to go into the temple and to light the incense. It was a huge honor that you only could get one time in your entire lifetime, and not everybody got to do it. So he got selected, and he walks into the temple just by being met, uh, just to be met by the angel Gabriel sitting and waiting for him. And then the angel Gabriel gives gives him a promise, and he says, you will have a child and you should name him John. And the the overwhelmment of this emotion that he's feeling and the significance of this moment, he kind of stumbles around his words and says, well, well, how's that going to happen? I mean, you know, my wife is well advanced in years and we can't have children. And as a punishment, he, his mouth gets closed. And then what happens is Luke takes us kind of down Um, introduces us to Mary and to the stories we've covered in the last few years. But in the verses we're going to read, starting at verse 57 in Luke 1, we're getting back to this story. And we start seeing the promise of the birth of John being fulfilled. And so that's kind of the situation we're going to enter. And so I'm going to ask you just to stand up as we're reading from God's word in reverence to his word. And if you want to open your Bibles, Luke 1, 57 to 63, 
and I'm going to read it out of the NIV, and I'm also going to put it up on the screen if you don't have your Bible with you. But this is what it says. It says, when it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, no, he is to be called John. So they said to her, there's no, no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made a sign to his father to find out what he would like the name of the child. He asked to, for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. Immediately, his mouth was open and his tongue set free, and he began to speak, praising God. All the neighbors were filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. You may be seated. Well, what an incredible story we get introduced here. And that we're going to unfold a little bit today, seeing how it applies to us as the earth is starting to get ready for Christmas. And I love, too, how real the Bible is. So what we see here is that finally John is born. This promise that God gave to Zechariah becomes reality. But then what happens? Friends and family. And I don't know about you, but maybe over this last Thanksgiving period or at the Christmas time, you're going to encounter some family issues because families don't always think like we do. Our friends don't always think like we do, right? And Zechariah encounters the same thing. Because in the tradition at the time, on the eighth day when the child was to be circumcised, he gets his name. And so tradition back then was that his name should be a relative. It should have probably been Zechariah, but it should have just been an ancestor of their lineage to carry on the name. And so they go to Mary, the mom, and say, hey, Mary, what about what is going to be the name of this child? And she clearly must have communicated with Zechariah, or maybe she had her own angel encounter. We don't know. But she very quickly says, no, his name is John. And then as family and friends do, what do they do? They act like my 11-year-old daughter that if she doesn't get from mom what they want, what do they do? They go to dad, right? And that's exactly what they did. So they go to Zechariah and say, well, don't you know that, you know, you should name the child after an ancestor? And so what do you want to name the child? Thinking they can get around, um, around Elizabeth. But what does he say? He says, no, his name is John. And at that point, his mouth gets open. Another miracle happens, and he is able to praise God as a result. What an incredible story we get to see. As I was reading this story, and maybe you picked up on it as well, one of the first questions I asked myself was, why did Zechariah's mouth doesn't get open when John is born? I mean, look at it again with me here, verse um, 8, 19, and 20. It says this, that, you know, this is the angel speaking, and he says, you're not going to be able to speak until the day this happens. So this was the announcement of the birth of John. And in my mind, I'm thinking, well, shouldn't then, when John was born, Shouldn't that be the time when his mouth gets open? Because isn't that when the promise has been fulfilled? But that's not what we see. In fact, we see in verse um, 63 and 64, it says, immediately his mouth was open and tongue set free, but not until the eighth day when he confirms the name 
of John. And I wonder myself, well, why is that important? Why would that be relative or relevant to each of us today? And to me, it's clear because God cares about the journey, not the destination. And he wanted to make sure that Zechariah would learn an important lesson because this, before this punishment would get taken from him. Because I do believe that God wants to teach him and us today about faith and trust. In fact, it's interesting that if you're looking at the response that Mary gives, right? So um, those stories are very similar. Mary encounters the angel Gabriel just like Zechariah does. Zechariah says, well, how can this be? And Mary pretty much says exactly the thing and the same thing, and she gets praised for it, and Zechariah gets muted. Well, why would that be? It clearly wasn't because there was anything wrong with Zechariah or Elizabeth. I mean, look at it. It says that they were righteous and blameless. We looked at that a few weeks ago in verse 6. But I do think there was an important lesson that God wanted Zechariah and his family to learn in the midst of their different circumstances. And he wanted them to learn that he needed to trust and have faith in God. And so you probably know about me by now that I'm a very practical person. And so I thought, well, I'm gonna show you how trust works. And so I'm gonna introduce you here in a moment to one of my good friends, Arthur. Arthur is a missionary. He is here from Germany. He's a pastor in his local church. He's a guy that I've been friends with for a long time and I've discipled him. Arthur, why don't you come up? And we're gonna do a little experiment. Okay, so why don't you come up, Arthur? And thank you for joining us. I hope this is gonna go well. Because I wanna do a water experiment with Arthur. But Arthur, let me ask you a question first. Do you trust me? I mean, we've known each other for a long time. Do you trust me? Oh, yes, absolutely. Okay, good. I hope you will after this as well. But um, are you sure? I mean, you really trust me? Yes, I do. Okay, well then, here is a bottle of water, a bag of water, right, in it. And so, Arthur, what I'm going to do is I'm going to push this pencil through both sides right here on the stage, through the bag. Is that okay? Okay. Okay. What if I do it over your head? Mm, okay. <laughs> do you still trust me? I trust you, but I feel uncomfortable. Okay, I get that. I get that. Nothing wrong with that. Okay, well, let's do it. So I'm going to take this pencil, and I'm going to push it right through the water bag. How about that? All right, so look up. Wow. Wow. Yeah, isn't that amazing? All right, well, thank you for trusting me. Can we give Arthur just a quick round of applause? You can go down. Well, why would I show you this? Arthur clearly trusted me at the beginning, right? I mean, he said that we known each other for a long time, but I put him in an uncomfortable situation. I put him in a situation where he didn't know what was going to happen. You know, I mean, he could have taken a shower right here in the middle of all of you and watching online, probably a video that would have gone viral, um, not to his favor, but he still trusted me. But do you think he trusts me more now that I've proven myself faithful to him than he did before? There may have been a step in there that he did. There may be a step that now that I've put him in an uncomfortable situation, that his faith and his trust in me is grown. And I do believe that that's exactly why um, Zechariah was put in that position. I think that God sometimes uses difficult circumstances and issues in our lives to help us grow our faith. 
In fact, verse 18, he puts it this way. If you think about it, this is the last words he says. He says, how can I be sure of this? Doubting if the promise of the angel was gonna be true. And then the first words out of his mouth or actually on his tablet are, his name is John. It wasn't like his name could be John or maybe it's John or I think we should name him John. No, he knew that God promised would come through. So clearly in that in-between uncomfortable situation, he learned an important lesson about faith and about who God is. And that's why I think we need to um, start thinking about our difficult circumstances in a different light. And it's never wrong to ask the why question in the midst of difficulty. It's not a bad question to ask, to ask God, why is this happening to me? But can I just challenge you today to maybe switch your thinking just a little bit? And instead of asking why, ask what? Don't ask why God, but ask what God are you trying to teach me in the midst of my circumstances? Don't ask why God, but ask him about making sure that we don't miss the lesson that he is trying to teach us just like Zechariah did. In fact, James, the brother of John, he puts it this way. He says, we should consider it pure joy, brothers and sisters, wherever we face trials of any kind, because you are known that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. God wants us to trust him. He wants us to put all of our faith in him and understanding that even as we're going through hard times, maybe there's a lesson in there that we need to learn. And Zechariah clearly got that message. In fact, we see it, how he responds at the very end. He says this, he says, as he began to speak, what did he do? He didn't complain to God. He didn't say, why God? Finally, I have my voice back, but man, could you have not had this happen? What does he do? He praises God. He says, God, I am grateful for this hard time I had to go through because it helped me draw myself closer to you. And I'm not trying to simplify the problems that you may be facing. I'm not trying to uh, put a little Band-Aid on a bigger issue. I'm not saying that at all, but I just want our thinking just to change just a little bit about stopping to ask why, but God, what are you trying to teach me? Because Zechariah clearly had six months or more in the midst of this happening to be able, unable to speak. But he learned a lesson because of it. And I think that's what God wants us to do. He wants not us to waste any opportunities to grow our faith in him. In fact, 1 Peter even encourages us. He says this, he says, dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeals that have come upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when God's glory is revealed. So what I hear in these verses is that we shouldn't be surprised if bad things happen to us. It doesn't mean that we're doing something wrong in our faith or that we have sinned because that's what many people thought back then and honestly still do today. That, that's not what the message is here. In fact, it says that if we believe in Jesus, we should expect hard things to happen to us. The question is how do we respond in the midst of this hardship? And here it clearly says we should rejoice. We should embrace the challenges, not giving up. Because honestly, as a pastor, a lot of times what happens to people is that when they hit a hardship, there's two ways they can go. Either it draws them away from God and they've fallen away and you probably know people like that. But then I've also encountered people that through the hardships, they were drawn closer to him. 
They have a stronger relationship because they trusted him in the midst of difficulties and he has proven faithful because God is still faithful today. He still delivers on his promises each and every day. But let me shift our thinking a little bit because the next question that as I was reading these verses, I asked myself was, well, why was the name John so significant? I mean, think about it. Like, you know, a few weeks ago, we looked at Jesus himself. And, you know, when, when the angel encounters Mary, he clearly says his name was Jesus. And that I get completely. I mean, you don't want to get the name of Jesus wrong. Like, you know, if they came up with some weird name, like, no, I get that God wanted to make sure that Jesus' name was right. But why did he put such an emphasis on the name John? Do you think about that? Why was John so important that the angel had to make sure that they got his name right? Well, I think that's the other part of preparing our hearts for Jesus and for Christmas. Because in the meaning of John, there's so much to learn. And so a few weeks ago, we looked at the names of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And Jim did an excellent job of explaining to you how names were important back then, and they still are today. But back then, they really had a deeper meaning. And so if you look at the name Zechariah, it meant God remembers. But then if we look at the mom, Elizabeth, it means God promises. So what his point was is that the parents of John were God remembers his promises. But what about John? What does John's name mean? And so there's two different definitions that I found. One of them says that God Jehovah is gracious. And the other one is that God the Lord has been merciful. So I love that description. And so what this says is that while Zechariah means God remembers and Elizabeth means God promises, the word John really means grace and mercy. And remember, John's job was to prepare the world for Jesus. And so grace and mercy are not necessarily always terms we still use today. So let me explain them to you for a moment. Mercy, I'm going to start with mercy, is actually not receiving the punishment that we deserve to get. And on the flip side, grace means receiving a gift that we don't deserve. So the way I think about it is that grace and mercy are really kind of two sides of a coin. Let's call the coin love. And on one side, you have grace. And on one side, you have mercy. Grace being receiving something that we don't deserve, while mercy is not receiving the punishment that we do deserve. Does that sound like anybody you know? To me, it does. It's Jesus. That's why he came. That's why that baby that was born on Christmas grew up to be the son of God, to, to become the savior of the world that lived a sinless life, to die on the cross and be resurrected so we have access to God for eternity. And we see in his life, in Jesus' life, that mercy is there because of what he did. We don't get the punishment that we deserve, right? We don't have to go to hell if we accept him in our hearts because of what he done for us. But Jesus didn't just bring mercy. He also brought grace. And because of what he did for us, if we have accepted him, we get to be in heaven. We receive this undeserved gift of heaven to be with him today. And I think that's why the name of John is so important. Because not only does God remembers his promises, but he fulfills them through Jesus who brings grace and mercy. Another thing that I found interesting in the story is that there's a lot of similarities about John and the nation of Israel or the birth of John and the nation of Israel. I mean, think about it for a moment, right? His parents, Elizabeth 
and Zechariah had waited a long time for a child, just like the nation of Israel has waited for a Messiah for a long time. I mean, remember, 400 years of silence from God until all these things unfold. But then what happened? They were unable, um, the parents were unable to conceive a child because they were barren and old because they couldn't solve this issue themselves. Just like the nation of Israel was unable to keep God's law. If you read the Old Testament, you can see they're trying and trying and trying, but they keep failing over and over again, not able to do it themselves. And eventually, I have no doubt that Zechariah and Elizabeth just gave up hope. Just like a lot of people in the nation of Israel had given up hope about the Messiah ever coming because of the long stretch of silence. But what does God do on Christmas? He brings not only to the parents a baby named John, but he also brings us a baby named Jesus, the Savior of the world, the one that's going to make the difference for eternity, not allowing the, our own inability to solve our problems, but allowing him to step in as our substitute and to save all of us. And when I read this and when I made this connection, I realized, what about us today? What about you and I? Maybe you've had this thought before where you're thinking, okay, I mean, it's been almost 2,000 years since Jesus went back up to heaven and he said, he promised us he will come back, but maybe you've ever asked yourself the question, well, is he? I mean, when is he coming back? Have we given up hope? Well, we clearly see that God is faithful. He is trustworthy. And he brought a child to a couple that was unable to have one. And he brought a nation of Israel and all of us today, a savior to save us. And so God's still in the business of fulfilling his promises. And so let's live in that expectation of God returning, of Jesus coming back on this earth. And to me, I'll be honest, I wish he could sooner rather than later. But I want to end with one thought as we talk about the name of John the Baptist. I mean, if you look through the story, the angel says his name is John, right? And a lot of times as I read the story, maybe you're unfamiliar with it. You know, it's not the, it's his middle name and Baptist is his last name, right? I mean, it's a description that was added later to this story because of the life that this baby that was about to be born was um, going to live. He ended up baptizing Jesus and hundreds of other people because of the life that he lived, fulfilling his purpose that God gave him. But what about us? What legacy are you going to leave behind? What word people are going to say about you when time comes and maybe they'll write a book about you one day? Is it going to be Mark the hard worker or Arthur the gifted speaker? Or is it Tom the handsome man? Or is it Susie the amazing mother? I don't know what it is, but I found a good one, and I'm going to try to keep remembering that one for my life. And that comes right out of Matthew 25, 23. What a great description we should all be thriving for in our life, where it says, the master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's try to remember that in our own lives. That should be our purpose. That should be our heart, should be to be servants of God to give it all for him, to lay it all on the line and not getting sidetracked, but the world tells us what we should be and who we should be and what we should be known for. Man, if at the end of my life, this is what can be said in my funeral, I am gonna be very, very glad and I'm happy if God receives me with those words as well and maybe you as well. But then one final point I wanna point out because kind of we read through this story and now we've kind of unveiled a couple of the things that um, God spoke to me through this story. 
But what was the response of the people because of all of that? What was the point that um, happened to the people around us? Because clearly God did some incredible miracles. Well, it was all full of joy and curiosity. Joy and curiosity is what happened as a result of this story. I mean, let's look at these verses, 57 and 58, where it says when Elizabeth finally had her baby, they all shared in her joy. All of her neighbors and relatives were joyful for her because of the miracle that God did. But it wasn't just joy, it was curiosity as well. 50, um, 65 and 66, they were filled with awe. All the neighbors were filled with awe. And the hill country of Judea, people were talking about these things. Everyone who heard wondered about it, asking, well, what then is going to be with this child? I mean, clearly God's hand is with him. If, if he's born out of a miracle and if the father has this incredible encounter and God uses it to grow his faith, and now he is able to speak again. I mean, people were talking about it, and it really challenged me that if we follow God's calling, if we trust him more each day, if we do what he wants us to do, if we strive for a legacy of being a good and faithful and trustworthy um, um, servant of God, it is surrounded. Our lives are going to be surrounded by joy and curiosity. People will be joyful because they've encountered God through you and through me. And they're going to start asking questions about, well, what is different about this guy? What is different about these people at Open Door? And imagine as we as a community would continue to live that out, the difference we would see in the lives of people over and over and over again. That's the life that God calls us to do, that stirs on in our communities the joy and curiosity, not about us, not about how great we look or how amazing the story is, but about the God that we love and the Jesus that we serve. And so it's no coincidence that today we get to celebrate communion together because I think Jesus knew how easy it is for us as human beings to forget. Because I have no doubt even back then, a few weeks from then, people would stop talking about it because we so quickly forget about what God is doing. In fact, I just read a study, not just even when it comes to God, but to everything in life. If you walk through a doorway, your brain is three to four times more likely to forget what you've just talked about or listened to or watched than when you were in the same room. That blows my mind. I mean, I'm thinking about it. If you all leave through these doors, you are three to four times more likely to forget anything I just said. I hope you don't, but that's why we need to remember. And that's why God gave us communion. That's why Jesus made sure that his disciple would continue to remember his death. And a few years ago, I was confronted with a problem because my youngest daughter came to me and she said, Daddy, can you help me understand what communion is? And I thought about it hard. I prayed about it. God, how can I show this to my daughter? And he gave me this revelation. I'm going to share it with you because maybe you've been here and Nobody ever really explained to you what communion really is about or what are an important aspect of communion is really, um, yeah, important. And so to me, it has all to do with this picture. Let me put it up on the screen so you can see it. This is an important picture in my life. This picture is my grandfather Ludwig and my grandmother Christine. They were from Germany. Um, they're on my father's side, so it's my father's parents. Um, and they were incredible people. They were people that were faithful. In fact, because of their faith, they got, um, they got um, um, saved through a 
tent crusade back then somewhere. Like this man caught fire for Jesus and instilled a legacy in all of his kids and then his kids into us. And now we get to share it with our parents because of the faith that they encountered. He was a regular guy. He was a postman for most of his life and uh, was a hard worker. He gave a lot of time and effort into his family. And, sh- and Christine, she was the most loving woman you can imagine. She was one of the most patient people I have ever encountered. Now, there's a reason for it too, because um, God gave them seven children, all boys, okay? Poor woman. I mean, she lived with eight men in the house. I mean, if you don't get patient through that process, I don't know what will, but she was already in the heart of that. She just embraced the love. But why is that picture so significant when it comes to communion? Well, this picture, if I don't have it in my hands, it actually hangs in our home in our family room. It's in a collage of different pictures of our family and our history, but it lives there and it hangs there for a purpose. And really for me, there's two purposes. One of them is for myself because sadly, as I was a teenager, both of them passed away over a period of a couple of years after long years of marriage. And I remember when I was in high school, actually, they left the retreat early to go to their funeral. But I have a lot of great memories about them. I remember my grandmother sneaking me German chocolate cake while everybody else was distracted just to eat some extras. And I remember my grandfather, and he loved his roses. He had a beautiful rose garden. That was his hobby. That was the way he loved spending his time. And I remember him showing me a ride and the pride in his heart as he was showing me all these things. And so for me, I love this picture because every time I walk by it, it reminds me about the memories that I have, even if they're not with me today. But there's a second reason why I love this picture, because it also gives me an opportunity to talk about them. You see, my kids will never have the opportunity to meet them. They had a significant impact on their lives, but my kids will never have the chance to talk to them in person, to have the same experiences. But because this picture hangs in our living room, I get a chance to talk to them about it. And I have done many times. And I will share stories about what they did and the impact that they had on me. And because of that, they had it on them as well. And to me, that's just one simple way of how communion is important. Because God gave us communion to remember what he did for us. Much more important than anything else that we're going to be talking about today or that my grandparents would ever do to me. Jesus came to be the savior of this earth. And he wants us to remember him, and that's why we celebrate communion together. And so in a moment, the way we do this here is we're going to have our ushers come forward while our worship team is going to come back on stage sharing with us a song. And during that song, what we're going to do is we're going to distribute the communion. And so what that means is they're going to come down, and you're going to get a piece of bread, and you're going to get a cup. And I'm going to And then what I want you to do is just hold those communion pieces while the worship team is continuing to sing, join them in worship. And then I will come back up at the end and I'm gonna share um, just out of God's word how he instilled communion for us, why we wanna remember the bread and the cup and the significance of that. That's what we wanna do here for a moment. Let's remember Jesus. Let's remember what he did for you today. And then let's go and share his love with the world as well as we remember him. But let me say a word of prayer. Holy Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your presence in this room. And God, I thank you for 
your continual pursuit of us. God, I don't know what needs to speak to us today. I don't know what each person needs to have your finger um, just on their life today. But God, I pray that as we walking through these doors, that we will not forget. That we will not forget the things that you have done for us. God, the miracles of the birth of John the Baptist, but way more important, the birth of your son, Jesus, on this earth that we get to celebrate as Christmas. God, help us to not only prepare our houses and our environments and make good food, but God, to remember why we celebrate it because of you, because of the promise you fulfilled through Jesus, the promise of grace and mercy that all we have to do is accept you and accept that we are not perfect, that we can't do it ourselves, but we need you more each day. And so God, allow us as we sing the song, as we receive the elements to remember you and what you have done. In your name I pray, amen.